going to continue this morning with our, our series called Righteous. Uh, we've been doing this for several weeks. All of the messages, if you haven't uh, been tracking with us, are available on our SoundCloud account, SoundCloud forward slash anchor dash Joburg. Uh, you can also find it on our website and on Facebook. We post them up, Instagram, Twitter, all of that stuff. We let you know when those messages are up. But this series is really about understanding the gospel and understanding what the Bible declares about how we get made right with God. People have this, in, uh, this innate knowledge, this, 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 this inherent knowledge that there is a God and also that they're not right with Him. Because if we all take a look in the mirror, if we all stand in front of a mirror and look at ourselves, we will know that we have done things that God wouldn't approve of right? If God is the God of the Bible, if He's the God of love, if He's the God uh, who is holy, if He's the God who's righteous, uh, then we'll know that we have all sinned, we've all erred, we've all made mistakes, we've all purposefully done things we shouldn't have done. Even knowing, sometimes we even ask God to forgive us before we've even done it. Have you ever done that? Like, God, forgive me, I, I, I know I'm going to do the wrong thing right now, and then you just go ahead and do it anyways, right? That's because we're sinful. And so we need to understand how do we as people that are inherently sinful and are born into this kind of condition, how do we get to stand in a relationship with God? How is it that we can be His children? How is it that God doesn't just reject us? How is it that God doesn't kick us out the house and say, you go uh, because of the things that you've done? How is it that God continually puts His arms around, around us and accepts us as His kids, as His children, as His family? No matter how many times we have betrayed him. I don't know if you've done this either, but when you make promises to God, you go, okay, God, I promise you, never again, God. I won't ever do that again. I won't, I promise you, God. Or I promise you, God, I will read my Bible every day. I'm never gonna relent. I'm never gonna stop. I'm just gonna be this warrior for Jesus. And I'm just gonna absolutely do everything I'm supposed to do. And then what, what do you do? You don't do what you promised that you would do. And then you go to God, I'm so sorry, God. Like, no, but this time, this time I'm serious. I've now learned my lesson and you make another promise and you break that one as well. And you make another promise and you break that one as well. And eventually, I'm sure all Christians have had the thought, can God keep forgiving me if I keep messing up in the same way? Can God? And, and there's a moment where we just feel overwhelmed by shame and guilt and condemnation. And, uh, and we don't feel like we are worthy of going to church anymore. We don't feel like we should be allowed into a church. Like they should block us at the door. There should be a bouncer, a church bouncer. They should just stop us at the door. We'll just get Vaynant. He'll stand at the door. And just be like, no, dude, you've, made, you've broken way too many promises for God. You need to go somewhere else. I hear there's a bar next door here by Kitchen Bar. You can go hang out there. Why is it that God just accepts us back all of the time? Why are we welcome here this morning, regardless of our struggles and our mistakes and our sins. I'm hoping to answer that question for you uh, through this message called Mirror this morning. I want to talk about Mirror. And uh, I'm going to go to 2 Corinthians 3. And I'm, to start off with, I'm going to read the whole passage from verse 4 to verse 18. And then we're going to break it up a little bit. And we're going to get into the scripture today um, from 2 Corinthians. It is so encouraging. I get so excited, you know, it's like when you get a, somebody who's a fanatic over a car and then they find like a gear lever and they like freak out about it and everybody else is like, seriously, it's a gear lever, you know? It's a little bit like that for me when I read this specific chapter in the Bible because of how it points to the new covenant that we have in Jesus. It absolutely blows me away and I'm hoping to convey some of it. I'm hoping that some of you will catch some of just the, just the majesty, just the, just the, the you know, 
how incredible this piece of scripture really is, what it's saying to us. So 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 4 says this. It says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. We have confidence towards God. Where, where does this confidence come from? Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not the letter, not of the letter, not of the law, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face, that time when Moses went up into the mountain and God gave him the law and it was carved in tablets of stone, if that was so glorious that when Moses came down from the mountain, people could not even look at his face because his face was shining with the glory of God. And that thing which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all. The law which once had glory now has no glory at all. Much more will what is permanent, the new covenant, have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. I just love the way Paul says this. Since we have such a hope, this is our hope, the new covenant, we're very bold. We're not like Moses who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. The glory that was on Moses' face was fading. We're not like that. Our glory doesn't fade. It says, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. They don't realize that the law is a fading glory. Because only through Christ it is, is it taken away. Only through Jesus do we understand that the law's glory fades and cannot save us. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. You're able to see. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. This is different. It's not the law. This is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, unveiled face, we see Jesus, we see the gospel, we see what he's done for us, we understand our righteousness with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, everybody say mirror, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image. We're looking at the glory of God when we look at Jesus, when we look at the gospel, but we do it as in a mirror. So while we look at Jesus, we see ourselves be transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Incredible scripture. I'm hoping to unlock some stuff in there for us today uh, as we understand more of our righteousness in Jesus, our identity in Christ, uh, the great life that God has called us to. Before we get into all of that, let me uh, pray for us, and then we trust that God's Spirit is just going to speak to us powerfully today. Father, we thank you so much that we come uh, before you this morning, Lord Jesus, just as your children. And we're children, God, that wants to hear from our Father. We want to learn. We want to understand, Lord God, not theoretically, uh, not via just simple intellectual learning, Jesus, but we want your Spirit 
to truly speak to our hearts this morning, Lord God. Change the things that need to change. Help us to stare into the mirror of your gospel today. Help us to stare into the face of Jesus. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus and understand that you are at work within us today, God. Help us to understand the new covenant that we have become a part of, God. The, the, the covenant that you have made with us based upon your grace, Father. And help us, Lord, to walk in that to walk in this revelation, to walk in this understanding, to walk according to the gospel for the rest of our lives. We thank you right now this morning that you speak to us, Father, and you are changing us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I'm not sure how many of you have uh, been to Gold Reef City lately uh, and gone and hung out on, on those rides. Uh, we always obviously used to do it at kids. You kind of do it when you're a kid and then you do it when you have kids again. And uh, so my wife and I, uh, we, we're in that phase where we have kids that just want to go to Gold Reef City and ride all of the rides and do all of this stuff there. And uh, when we were there recently, we saw that they had built on a whole bunch of uh, new areas uh, to the old Gold Reef City and really kind of uh, spruced it up a little bit. And um, and one section that they've added is a section uh, which is kind of like a science section where you can take your kids and you can do all kinds of scientific experiments with them. And well, not with them, not on them, just with them. You understand what I'm saying? They're just like checking things out, not actually doing experiments on kids. Um, but uh, one of the things that they have in this science area is a hall of mirrors. And in this hall of mirrors, they have mirrors that are bent and, uh, and shaped in different ways, so that when you stand in front of the mirror, it affects the way you see yourself. It affects your reflection. It distorts, ultimately, your reflection. And so one mirror will make you really, really tall and really, really lean. That's the mirror I spent the most time in front of. I mean, if you've, that's where you pull out your phone, and you're like, hey, looking great today. You know, you post it on Instagram. This diet's working. It's great, you know. And and then you go to another mirror and it makes you really short or another mirror makes you really wide. Uh, another mirror would change your face or give you a big head or whatever it may be. Uh, these reflections distort your images in different ways. And um, what I realized is that life really is like, in many aspects, like living in a hall of mirrors like that. We don't realize this because we're not in a physical hall with mirrors all of the time. Um, but life is really like a hall of mirrors. We are constantly having our image, who we are, our identity, reflected back at us through the things that people say, through what society uh, considers to be normal, through uh, you know, what we had teachers say to us when we grow up, through what, just, just how we reflect on ourselves, our value and our, and our worth. If you, uh, don't, uh, if you don't fall into a certain economic class, society will, will stereotype you and categorize you and tell you something about yourself and put you in that category. And so often, in fact, I would, I would venture to say that most of us live with a distorted view of ourselves. We don't really know who we are. We don't really know what our identity is. And you know when, you, this, this is all okay until the pressure of life starts to hit you. When the difficulties come. Because sometimes life has this way of smashing you right back to the core of who you are. And when you don't know who you are at your core, that's when we get into trouble. We start looking for ourselves in the wrong mirrors. We're trying to figure out, it's like trying to figure out who you are while standing in front of a mirror at Gold Reef City going, is this what I look like? The world does not give us an accurate reflection of who we really are on the inside. 
It distorts our value. It distorts our significance. It distorts uh, the people that God created us to do. Think about how much we do this subconsciously. Think about going to a party, or maybe even if you're a visitor here today, you walk in here, and your first thought isn't necessarily about the surroundings or what's happening. Your first thought is, how am I being perceived? It's not necessarily a conscious thought, but subconsciously, you feel either accepted or, or, or not accepted according to how you feel people are perceiving you in the room. We have this, uh, one of the reasons why I really, my, my wife loves dress-up parties, but one of the reasons why I'm not a fan of dress-up parties, right, is because I always feel like, what if I show up and I went all out? Like, I don't know if anybody else has these thoughts. I went all out on this dress-up party thing, and I get there, and everybody else just kind of did it, you know, like a subtle kind of way, like they added one item to their, to their dress uh, to their dress up. And I'm just like, I'm coming in there with a penguin suit and machine guns. I don't know why. But, you know, I'm just like, hey, what's up? And they, and they look at me like, whoa, this guy took this dress-up party thing real seriously. And then I wonder, how will I be perceived? Everybody would look at me and go, well, okay, this guy went all out. And so I always kind of, with dress-up parties, I play it safe, you know? Like, if, if, if nobody dressed up, I'd still kind of be fine. Um, and if everybody dressed up, yeah, yeah, they can see I kind of made an effort, right? So we, we, we're constantly doing this. We, we're thinking about how we are perceived. And as people respond to us and have responded to us throughout our lives, they are essentially mirrors to us. And subconsciously, what, how people have responded to us, the things that they've been saying to you since you were a child, it has formed your self-image, the way you see yourself. Now you, you accept what people have said about you, and so you automatically relate to people in that way because you assume that's how everyone perceives you. And you'll hear certain things be said about you again and again and again. And what this could actually do in this self-perception, this hall of mirrors that we live in, is it can lead us to be self-obsessed. We just focus on ourselves all of the time. I don't know if you've ever stood in front of a mirror long enough that you begin to look weird to yourself. Have you ever done that? <laughs> Stuff I do sometimes when I'm alone, you know, just like saying an, a word, an English word, just over and over and over again until it sounds foreign. Who else has done that? Come on, tell me I'm not alone. And so I'll look in the mirror. Some of you are worried about me right now. You look in the mirror, and the longer you look in the mirror, the more faults you see. I don't know if that's ever happened. You start to look strange. Wow, is that really what I look like? And then you start noticing, hey, my one ear is slightly higher. I always thought it, it's confirmed. My one ear is slightly higher than the other. That's no wonder my glasses never sit straight, right? And, uh, and you start to notice spots or, or things on your face or on your body that you were like, well, I, you know, I, I never knew this was there. And the longer we look at ourselves, the more faults we see. Sometimes what's even more dangerous is, than that is when we look at ourselves for a long time in the mirror and we see no faults. That's possibly even more dangerous when you're just like, no, I'm, I, I, just, I see no faults. But when we see these faults in ourselves, we actually become obsessed with fixing ourselves. Like you notice one tooth is a little bit skew or a little bit chipped or something. You think, I've got to go to the dentist. And you realize, hey, I really need a haircut. I've, just, I've got to get to a, to a salon this week, and I've, and I've got to go get a haircut. Or you realize that there's something on you that doesn't look right, and you're like, hey, I've got to go have that checked out. 
So we become obsessed when we look into the mirror, when we're looking at ourselves too much, of fixing ourselves. And if you see no faults, you become obsessed with showing yourself off. That's how the selfie got invented. Somebody took a photo of themselves and thought, this looks great. I actually look great. Nothing like me, but great. And so I need to be on social media so that I can share it. <laughs> I need people to see how great I look. But what the Bible tells us is that we do this as Christians. We're constantly focusing on ourselves. How am I living? How do I look? How am I perceived? Uh, am I doing the right things? Am I, am, am I staying away from the wrong things? Am I, uh, do the people around me think well of me? We start to do that. And the better we become at looking good, the more we want to show ourselves off in a Christian context. But what the Bible tells us, and I'm going to show you this today, the truth is, is that the more that we focus on our need to become better, the worse we become. The more self-obsessed we become and the more uh, just some people just analyzing themselves all day. And what it leads to is it leads to a form of Christian narcissism where you're never actually free to just be yourself, enjoy your relationship with God and do the things that he has called you to do. You're always hesitating because you're not quite sure if you're perfect yet, if you're ready yet, if you're righteous yet, if you can serve God yet. Talian Chavidjian, who wrote a book called Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything, uh, he, he said this. He said, there is nothing in the gospel or about the gospel that encourages me to focus on me. The Bible doesn't say, fix your eyes on yourself, the author and the finisher of your faith. It doesn't say that. It encourages us not to look to ourselves, not, and this is what we saw in that scripture, we'll get there now, but that scripture says, not that our sufficiency is of ourselves. That's why we're bold. Because we don't look at ourselves in the mirror and go, okay, if I'm perfect, then I can go do what God's called me to do. We look in the mirror and we see Jesus. And so we're very bold because we understand our sufficiency is not of ourselves, but it is of God. He's the one who makes us sufficient. I believe that in many aspects, in many ways, the church has been guilty of holding up the biggest mirror especially on a Sunday morning. People walk in, and if we're honest here this morning, a lot of us are broken. A lot of us are struggling with things. A lot of us are, are feeling ashamed about some of the parts of our lives that we're struggling to change. And oftentimes the church just holds up a big mirror and say, and which says, look at you. Look at you. You don't fit in. You're not playing the game. You're not, you're not dressing the way you're supposed to dress. You're not, you don't look the way that you're supposed to look. What people want to know is, who am I in relation to God? How do I stand in a relationship with God? And when the church holds up this kind of a mirror that shows people their faults and shows them how incorrect they are and, and, and puts this pressure on them, what we essentially do is we tell people that it's all about what's happening on the outside and nothing about what's happening on the inside. In other words, we put pressure on people to conform externally on the outside. And Jesus spoke about the Pharisees, the most devout people on the face of the planet, just, just worshiping God, following the law, doing everything that they're supposed to do. And Jesus' words, very hard words to them, he says, you're like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you're beautiful and white, but on the inside, Jesus' own words, you're full of dead men's bones. 
What God wants is a righteousness that comes from within, not a whitewash on the outside that makes us look real pretty. And then we get surprised in the church when people fall morally. Because they put up such a great act when they were here, never allowed to be weak, never allowed to, to struggle, never allowed to wrestle through things, that when they fall, we go, how could they? But we never gave them the space to understand their righteousness in Christ and grow in that journey. Todd Wilkins said this, he said, many pulpits across the land consistently preach the Christian and not the Christ. How you're supposed to look and not how Jesus has made you to look or how you look when you're in Christ. And this is a problem with our preaching. It's a disease in our preaching. So 2 Corinthians 3 has a few really important things to say um, in this regard. And ultimately what 2 Corinthians 3, what, what Paul is doing here is he is contrasting the old covenant of the law. Remember we spoke about the two separate mountains in our message called Ascend. How there is a mountain of the law where God gave the law amidst thunder and lightning and smoke and earthquakes and, and, and all of that. God gave the law to Moses and said, this is your minimum standard of holiness. This is how I need you to try and live if you're going to be right with me. God knew at that time that no one could live according to the law. He just wanted to prove every, that to everyone. And and this scripture contrasts that old covenant to the new covenant. You've come to a new and a living way, Mount Zion, where Jesus died on the cross. Where we're accepted by and forgiven and, and justified through the grace of God. And so here again, Paul is contrasting an old covenant with a new covenant. A covenant is an agreement. It's a, it's a bond. It's a promise. It's a, it's a pledge. And what we know about God is that he is a God of covenant. He makes covenant with his people. He makes a, a, a ratified agreement. He doesn't just go, hey, yeah, so we'll chat. Uh, you know, when, when you uh, sometimes say goodbye to people, and he's like, yeah, we must hook up for a coffee. And you never hook up for a coffee. That's not what God does. He doesn't go, hey, yeah, we'll chat in the future. We'll, I'll walk with you. And then you never hear from him. He actually, in his own blood, makes covenant, makes a promise. Like a marriage is the strongest example that we have in our world today of a covenant. And God is a God of covenant. Why? Because he is love. And true love is committed. True love is loyal. True love involves trust. That's why marriage is still relevant today. Some people want to question the relevance of marriage. Okay, but, but do you need to really do that whole thing in order to be in a committed relationship or, or whatever? And they distort. It's another mirror that distorts the idea of what true love is. Because true love isn't something where you just walk away at the drop of a hat. That's why God is a God of covenant. Because He's a God of love. And thank God for that. Because that means that He didn't walk away from us the 1,552 times we did what we shouldn't have done. Because he made a covenant with us. He stayed with us. He stuck with us. It's a full picture of love. So in that verse, if we can just go back to 2 Corinthians 3, that first part. It says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. There it is. It's a new covenant. Not of the letter, not of the old covenant, not of the law, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Paul says, 
We're confident before God. We're confident before men. Why are we confident? And Chris, you could just leave that scripture up there for a while. But why are we confident? Because our sufficiency is not of ourselves. Because we stand not in our own righteousness, but in the righteousness that God made with us and in this covenant. He loves us. God promised to be faithful. In fact, in 2 Timothy 2 verse 13, it says, even when we are faithless, God remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. That's, he's, he's just a, a faithful God. So that's why we're confident because God has made us sufficient. We're sufficient. I'm not in a phase of my life where I am at um, as a pastor with a young family um, where I hang out in five-star hotels a lot, right? <laughs> Some of you, you're like, yeah, I get you. Like, we don't, we don't go to five-star hotels. If we're ever staying over somewhere, three-star is awesome, right? And, and so um, a while back, we had a friend who's also a Christian, and, uh, and this friend of ours owns a five-star hotel in Rosebank. And, uh, and she basically let us know that in order to treat my wife and I, she was giving us uh, five-star, one night in a five-star hotel with all the bells and whistles and, uh, and with all the meals included and everything. Now, normally, when I go into a five-star hotel and uh, I walk in there, you know, I realize I'm not dressed appropriately and, you know, I, I can't afford these rooms. And, you know, you know, when you sit down at a restaurant and you open up the menu and it's like way more, it's like your weekly wages for a plate of food. And you're just like, mm, you know what? I'm not so hungry today. Do you have bread? Do you have any bread? I'm just, you know, like you're that, you're, <laughs> you're that used to it that you have the guts to just ask for bread at a five-star hotel. Uh, no, just bring me bread, man. I'm just, I'm just going to have some bread and water. Um, and so we were kind of in that space. We could never afford any of those things in our, in our own selves. But because somebody else paid the price for us, because we knew the owner of the hotel, and when we got there, she had organized a special welcome for us and, and extra stuff in our room, gave us one of the best rooms in this five-star hotel. We were like, we own this place, right? <laughs> There's a confidence. We own this place. We're putting on our sports jackets. We're going down to the... Just bring me whatever. Just bring me, yeah, whatever. Just open it up. Just give it. You know, we, we, we just put the bill on the room because we knew we weren't paying. So there's a confidence that comes when you know the owner of the hotel and when everything has already been paid for. It's kind of the same thing here because we knew our sufficiency was not of ourselves. We just know the owner. And so what does it give you? Confidence. Confidence before God. Confidence to stand in a relationship with Him. Confidence. To, uh, to do the things that God has called you to do. That's the new covenant that we have come to. Paul says, not the covenant of old, not the one that came with the law, not the one of the letter, not that, those letters that were, that were carved out in stone, this hard, unbending, unforgiving list of rules that you're supposed to follow, but according to the Spirit. Because the letter kills us, but the Spirit gives life. And this is something we often hear Paul talking about. The letter of the law. Why does it bring death? Why does it bring death? Because we cannot keep it. It makes us guilty before God. It proves to us. If you just try to follow the Ten Commandments, if I ask if there's anybody here, who, in, whether you're old or young, whether you have kept the Ten Commandments, we'd all have to put our hands down. Because we've all been dishonest. 
And we've all taken what didn't belong to us. And we've all made idols in our lives. We've all worshipped things that we should. So we're all guilty. That's exactly what the law did. It brought death. That's why Paul says it's the ministry of condemnation. It's helping us understand that in our own selves, we're insufficient. We're condemned. We're guilty before God. So that's why it brings death. It makes us guilty. Romans 7 verse 10 says it quite clearly. It says, and the commandment, we can just skip over to yeah, Romans 7 verse 10. And the commandment, which was to bring life, if we could follow it, Paul says, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, the sin in me, when it saw the commandment says, okay, I'm gonna not follow this, deceived me, and by it, it killed me. The same way that your New Year's resolutions killed you last year. I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do it, I've got it in me. And then you failed and you're like, oh, who am I? <laughs> so if we live according to the law, it brings death because it shows us that we are sinful and separated from God. It's interesting to look and to see that on the day that the law was given to Moses in that rebellion of Aaron and uh, where everybody started worshiping Baal, 3,000 people died on the day that, that the law was given. But in the New Testament, when the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, 3,000 people were saved. Because the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. God gives life to sinners that previously would have been swallowed by the earth, as happened on that day. So it brings into view this idea of being led by the Spirit. Being led by the Spirit. You see, what God wants is a genuine relationship with you where he personally leads you. He doesn't want you to just pick up a rule book and follow the rule book because you can do that or try and do that without God's help. He wants you to be led from within. And so interestingly, Paul actually draws a contradiction between following the law and being led by the Spirit, saying that if you do follow the law, you're not allowing the Spirit to lead you. You're rather looking to the letter of the law to lead you. It's like working systematically off of a list. It's not what God wants us to do. It's not a real relationship. Imagine if, if you got married and somebody gave you a rule book of how to be married and there was just a checklist that you needed to complete every day. Say hello, make breakfast, say goodnight, go to sleep. Like just, and that's just what you do. How many of you would agree with me that there wouldn't be a great relationship? Because relationships aren't just about doing stuff. They're about connecting with a real person. And that's the gospel. God doesn't want you to just do stuff. He wants you to know him and be known by him. Enjoy him. Know that he delights in you. Experience his love. Experience his goodness. Experience his presence. And from that place of gratitude and being overwhelmed by the goodness of God, you are led by the Spirit into all the things that God wants you to do. It's a real relationship. Not a list of things. It's, it's supposed to be heartfelt and authentic. So what the letter does, it actually separates us from a relationship with God. That's why it kills. But what the Spirit does is it connects us to God. It connects us to the very heart, the very voice. The Bible says that the Spirit takes the hidden things of God, the things that, are, that we couldn't even think or imagine, and it reveals us to, to it. 
it to us. In other words, it even goes on and says, for who knows God like the Spirit of God, uh, just like who knows man like the Spirit of man. In other words, who knows you like you know you. God's Spirit knows God, and God's Spirit has brought those things, those mysteries of the heart of God, the love of God, the grace of God, and He reveals it to us. So we know God. We know God. We know Him. Not of Him, but we know Him. Genuinely, we know Him. So Paul goes on and he says, Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness, you see in the letter was condemnation, but the, but the Spirit and the gospel brings righteousness, right standing with God, must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, again he says, we are very bold, not like Moses who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end or that fading glory. So when Moses comes down from the mountain after having received the law, his face is literally glowing because he's been standing in the presence of the Father. His face is shining. And the, the book of Exodus tells us that Moses put a veil over his face. And everybody assumed that this was because uh, it was so bright that he didn't want to give the Israelites arc eyes, right? We don't want, you know, just like the glory of, of, of Moses' face is so incredible. Let's protect the people by putting on a veil. But actually what Scripture reveals to us here in 2 Corinthians is that the reason why Moses put the veil is not to protect people's eyes, but so that they couldn't see that that glory fades. It fades. It wanes. It dissipates. For some of you, this is what your relationship with God has felt like and possibly still feels like today. When you started off and you met God, you became aware of His love, you became aware of His grace, you were overwhelmed by the majesty and the magnitude and the grace of God. You looked into his face and you looked into the eyes of Jesus and you saw the love of God and you were just, you know, on cloud nine. You were just so excited. You wanted to tell everybody that you knew. You wanted to go to church every day. You were like, why is church closed on a Monday? I just want to be there. You were counting down the days till you could get to connect group, until you could get to church, until you could worship again. You went out to, to a, a Christian bookstore and you bought every Christian CD you could afford and you just started listening to it in your car, going, where has this stuff been all my life? You know, why have I not been made aware of this before? Now I know it and it's so amazing and it's so awesome and you're, you're crying all the time. You know, you see birds flying and you just start crying and you see a baby crying you just start crying you're just overwhelmed by the experience of the goodness of God this glory you started to experience your own life changing your own perspectives changing the own your own way of living started to to change you started to see things in a new light in a new way you were actually hungry to read your bible and to pray and to study the word and to, to be in church and to connect with other believers. But what happens so often is that as the weeks and the months pass, we have to put a veil in front of our faces so that the other people who knew us when we just found out what Jesus had done won't recognize that the glory has started to fade. 
that we've become a little bit more cynical now, that it's a little bit harder to wake up on a Sunday morning to get to church, that we're a little bit more lax in our, our commitment and, 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 and in our pursuit of God. We actually feel the glory fade. So we put on a mask, a pretend, a veil. No, 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 I'm still, still great. But for a lot of us, when we come to church and when we live our lives, our relationship with God feels like a battle to get the glory back, like a battle to get the shine back into our faces, to see that glory appear on us, a little bit like a roller coaster ride, the ups and the downs, like I'm, I'm trying real hard and now it's more difficult, now I'm trying real hard and, and, and we go up and down. And I want to put it to you this morning that that is only because you don't understand your righteousness. It's the only reason why you feel like the glory is fading is because you don't understand the glory, which according to this scripture is permanent. It's permanent. It doesn't fade. If you are living your life in relation to God according to the law, you will always feel like the glory is fading. But if you understand the new covenant, you'll understand that what Jesus has given us is a permanent glory and in Christ, the veil is removed. I'm not talking about emotional highs and lows here. I'm talking about faith, rock solid faith. Watchman Nee actually talks about this. He says, uh, immature believers want experiences. God, just do something so that I know that you're real again, God. I don't know. And, and he says that what happens is God in his grace to let you know that he is with you. He'll give you an experience. He'll show you something to show you that he is with you. And then you're like, yes. And you go out there and you live and you tell people, I am the chosen of the Lord. And you actually become self-righteous because you're like, because God spoke to me. That's actually spiritual immaturity. Maturity, according to Watchman Nee, is the just shall walk by faith. You don't need the experience. You know the gospel. You know the new covenant. You know the righteousness that you have in Christ. You know who you are, and you know that that glory does not fade. It does not dissipate. It does not disappear. It is constant. If you're trying to stay close to God by keeping rules, you're going to experience a fading glory. Because it's a ministry of condemnation. But the new ministry is more glorious. Why? The new covenant. Because it's a ministry of righteousness, which is permanent and unfading. So Paul goes again. He just said we're confident. Now he goes, so we're very bold. Just in case you missed that, we're very bold. Because we're not walking around with a fading glory going, oh, I used to be a good Christian, but now you know, I don't pray so much anymore. And yeah, I kind of... Uh, I don't really know, like somebody comes to you for prayer and you're like, oh, you know what, but I haven't even read my, my Bible in a month. I, maybe you should go find a pastor somewhere. Paul says, we're not like that. We're very bold because we have a covenant with God that does not fade, that cannot be broken, that is permanent according to 2 Corinthians 3. In the Old Testament, people worshiped God in a tabernacle and then later in the temple. The tabernacle is a temporary structure they put up in the wilderness and then later they built a permanent one which was the temple uh, in Jerusalem. And there were certain rituals that these people had to follow, especially the priests, the sons of Aaron, uh, to get into the presence of God, the most holy place. Some very strict rules that they had to do. The first thing that they came to was an altar. 
And there a sacrifice was made on the altar to signify the forgiveness of sin. It was an imperfect sacrifice. We know that from the book of Hebrews. We'll be speaking on that in a week or two. I'll mention some of that. Uh, it was an imperfect sacrifice. But now, uh, but, but once they've done that, they moved past to something which was known as a bronze laver, which is essentially a bath, uh, a bronze bath that's, that's on a stand, similar to a bird bath, but a little bit bigger, made out of bronze. And the instruction was that the priests had to wash their hands in that bronze laver before they could go into the presence of God, before they can go and perform their duties before God, before they could serve Him. What's really, really interesting, though, is that this bronze laver was made out of mirrors that were taken from the women of Israel. It was a, a bath with water in with a mirror that... When the priests washed their hands and washed their feet as they were instructed to do, they would see themselves in this bath. I'm going to show you these scriptures. Exodus chapter number 30, verse 17 says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You shall make a laver of bronze, with its base also of bronze, for washing. You shall put it between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar. And you shall put water in it. For Aaron and his sons, which are the priests, shall wash their hands and their feet in the water from it. In Exodus 38 verse 8, it says, He made the laver of bronze and its base of bronze from the bronze mirrors of the serving woman who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And this was serious. They had to wash their hands. Otherwise, if they walked into the presence of God without having washed their hands and feet in this bronze laver, they would die. Uh, as, as the, the law put it, lest they die. So I believe that this is a picture of Jesus. The first thing that we see is that bronze symbolizes something, and we find this in Scripture again and again and again. We find that these precious metals like gold and silver, uh, they, they symbolize, and bronze, they symbolize something specific, and you see it as a pattern through Scripture. And what bronze symbolizes again and again in Scripture is judgment. It symbolizes judgment. They had to wash their hands and feet in a bath of judgment. In other words, as they're looking at their own faces in judgment, they're washing themselves. They're washing themselves. They're cleansed through the judgment. And they've just made the sacrifice on the altar. They've just made a sacrifice and now they're cleansing themselves while looking at themselves in the, that, that, bra that bronze labor. And this is a picture of Jesus because Jesus is the one who was the sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice, the once and for all sacrifice. And he died on the altar, on the cross, for our sins. And through the judgment that fell on Jesus, guess what? We have been washed and cleansed of our sin. Through judgment, there's, there's listen, listen to this, just get this picture. There is water in the bowl of judgment that cleanses us. And as Jesus took the judgment of God, that same water of what he did cleanses us of all unrighteousness. And then what happens once we've washed ourselves in the water of the judgment? We get to go into the presence of God. We are very bold. We just walk right in to the presence of God. We serve God boldly. We perform our duties before God with confidence. Why? Because we've been washed in the water of judgment. 
Jesus has taken our judgment and washed us clean of our iniquity is what scripture tells us. John 15 verse 3, just to show you that I'm not lying to you today. today, today, today. This is actually in scripture. John 15 verse 3, Jesus' disciples, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Through the gospel, you're already clean. Hebrews 10.22 says it as clearly as I can say it this morning. Let us draw near to the presence of God with a true heart in full assurance of faith. I say it to the guys, the team, every Sunday morning. I'm like, guys, let's be full of faith. Full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We've been washed because of the judgment. We've been washed. We look into the mirror and what is supposed to be judgment, we see cleansing because of what Jesus did. And that's why the scripture encourages us to when we look into the mirror, not see ourselves in regards to our righteousness, but to see Jesus. Or, or in regards to our unrighteousness, but to see Jesus in our righteousness. Does that make sense this morning? Hebrews 12 verse 1, almost done this morning, says, Let us run with endurance, confidence, boldness, endurance, the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Can you imagine running a race? I don't know how many of you did athletics at school or after school. But can you imagine trying to run while looking at your own feet? You would never stay in your own lane. You'd be running all over the place. You'd be crashing into people. In all the years that I ran athletics races, I knew that the only time I look at my feet is just before I start running. And after that, I fix my eyes on a point at the finish line and I run straight through it. That's how you run this race. And Paul says, we don't look at ourselves trying to, trying to measure our feet and trying to analyze every step. We look to the end point and we run full, full heartedly to that point. That's how we live the Christian life. We, we don't look at ourselves and, and condemn ourselves constantly and constantly analyze. I'm not saying there's no place for self-evaluation. There definitely is, and the Holy Spirit will do that. It's called conviction. But we fix our eyes on Jesus. We run this race with endurance. If you've ever heard the famous words of a, when, when somebody is walking over a, a tight rope or over something very narrow over a, 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 on a high place, the famous words are, don't look down, right? That's how you die <laughs> when you're walking over a gorge suspended on a slack line. That's how you die, by looking down. None of those guys walking on a tightrope you'll ever find looking at their own feet evaluating their steps. They find a fixed point on the other side, and that's where they walk to. It brings stability to us. The way that the law works, the old covenant, is it makes us look down. It makes us look at our own feet. And what Paul is saying is, you're not, doing, you're not under that covenant anymore. What you need to do now is fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on the cross. Fix your eyes on what Jesus did for you on the cross. 2 Corinthians 3.17, that last bit of that scripture, um, if we can just put up the, the very last, sorry, there we go. At the end there, from verse 17, it says, Now, the Lord is the Spirit. The Lord is the Spirit. The next, it, it will be the next one. 
Go right back to the beginning. There we go. Now the Lord is the Spirit. It says there on the third line. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. That's freedom. The freedom to know God and to walk into His presence and to be bold and to be confident. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. I find this so incredible that when we look into the mirror, instead of now seeing our own faults and flaws and unrighteousness, we believe that that person has been crucified with Christ. The old things have passed away. And now no matter how you may struggle in your walk, what God wants you to do is look into the mirror and see the glory that does not fade. See the glory that does not pass away. See the righteousness of God. But where are you going to see it? In your own face. As you see Jesus. Does that make sense? It's incredible because you're looking into a mirror which you would expect to see your own face, but you see Jesus. His glory reflecting on you. He is, we have been hidden in Christ, Scripture says, with God. So when you look into the mirror, now instead of seeing all of, your, all of the reasons why you cannot be right with God, you see your righteousness and your identity begins to shift. The Scripture tells us that we are no longer to consider ourselves according to the flesh. In 2 Corinthians 5, a few chapters later, don't consider anyone any longer according to the flesh. For the old things have passed away. Behold, God says, I have made all things new. Consider yourselves, in another place in Romans, Paul says, reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. An identity shift. As we do this, that scripture says, as you see yourself according to the righteousness that you have in God, what happens? We are transformed from one degree of glory to another into that same image. By seeing who you are in Christ, you'll become who you are in Christ. By seeing who you are in Christ, by believing in who you are in Christ, you will become and begin to live according to that new identity. This is how God changes us, through the gospel, by keeping our eyes on Jesus. So the greatest temptation that, when we, that we face when we sin is not actually the sin itself. The sin itself is actually a small thing. Do you know what's the genuine temptation that we face in life? Is to deny the righteousness and the grace that we have in God. To see ourselves according to the old person rather than according to the new. That's the crux of the matter. That's why you sin. Because you see yourself as the old sinner rather than as the new creation. It's an identity problem. When we think of ourselves as the old man, as the old slaves to sin, we will always be slaves to sin. But the truth is, is that Jesus has, has set us free. He's washed us in that water. My last scripture this morning, James 1.23, says, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently, listen, intently, at his natural face, the natural face. I love the fact that the Bible puts that in there. It's your natural face. You're looking intently into your natural face in the mirror. 
For he who looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. The person who is a hearer of the word and not a doer is someone who looks intently at their natural face and then the moment they walk away forgets what they look like. It couldn't be put clearer than that. When you look at yourself, your natural face is the righteousness of God, the sacrifice of Jesus, the, 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 the right standing in a relationship with the Father. I'm a new creation. This is who I am. When I go away and I sin, I've already forgotten immediately. So don't be just a hearer of the gospel. Be a doer. Be somebody who lives according to their natural face, who you are in Christ. Does that make sense this morning? The Bible is so deep. <laughs> it's got so much rich imagery that uh, it can be overwhelming sometimes. Sin is what happens when we forget what we look like. Sin is what happens when we forget what we look like. We've forgotten who we are in Christ. It's like a form of spiritual amnesia. In fact, the word sin is actually a term used in archery, which is to miss the mark. And the word repentance actually means to change the way you think. You've missed the mark, so change the way you think about yourself. And then liberty comes from understanding who you are in Jesus. Can I ask Crystal just to come up for us for a moment and just to play? Can you just put the keys on there? I'm going to ask Chris, Crystal just to play for us for a moment as we finish today. But uh, what I want to tell you is that God wants a new covenant with us. He doesn't want us to relate to him according to the covenant of old. This is not about rules. This is not about regulations. This is not about a formula. This is not a Christian program or some AA meeting that we're trying to put you into so that you can get better. This is a promise from a loving father who pledged to be committed to us, not because we deserved it, but because of his love, because of who he is. And this new covenant, the Bible says, is based on better promises. It's a better covenant on better promises. The promise that God, by his grace, would make us right with him. The promise that God would be committed to us and remain faithful to us even when we are faithless. God expresses his love causes us to experience His love. And what it produces in us is a response of commitment. That's what true love does. It produces a response. When you experience that someone loves you truly, it inspires and recreates the effect and you're able to commit yourself truly to that person as well. This is what Jesus has done for us. He's given us the love of God. He's made that new covenant and we get to respond. Isn't that incredible? Come on, God is a good God. He loves us. He's faithful and unfading glory. If you're worried about your glory fading, it cannot. You can take the veil off because God is committed to us.